I'm Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to the Hedge School podcast. We're dedicated to conversations about building a new folk culture, one which is deeply rooted in our native knowledge and traditions. The Hedge School was born from my belief that the personal, social, and environmental problems we're facing today have arisen not just as a result of our profound disconnection from the beautiful, animate world around us, but from a lack of rootedness in our ancestral traditions. So our work is about reclaiming ancient wisdom, not to try to recreate a long-lost past, but to use that wisdom to help us build authentic traditions for today. In our series of podcasts, we'll be offering you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. The wisdom contained in myth and folk tales, connecting with our places, reclaiming our indigenous roots, the practice of traditional crafts and old ways of knowing, and so much more. If all this resonates with you, do come and join the discussion in our online communities. You can find out all you need to know at www.thehedgeschool.org. Today's podcast is on a subject very close to my heart. It's about the subject of elderhood. What does it mean to be elder in today's world? And that, of course, perhaps inevitably, leads us to the subject of death and dying. As always, when I think about these issues, I'm informed by the native wisdom and mythology of these lands, and I wrote about that in a chapter of my book, If Women Rose Rooted. So I'd like to begin today by reading you a short section from that book, and then I'm going to be talking to Stephen Jenkinson, the writer and author who's the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School in Canada. The old women of Celtic mythology are not to be messed with. As a Celtic woman, to be elder is to be Kalyach, the old woman who made and shaped the lands of Ireland and Scotland, the divine old hag of these countries. And if, as a Celtic woman, to be elder is to be Kalyach, then to be elder is above all to be the fierce protector of the earth, guardian of its balance. In the Scottish Highland she was known as the Caliach Benbrick, protector of the deer or the fairy cattle. Hunters had a great respect for her, and if they followed her instructions on which deer to cull and when, she ensured that they were always provided with enough food and pelts. So she is seen to be carefully guarding the balance of the natural world, but if her instructions were not followed, there were serious consequences. In some of these old stories, the Kalyak might appear as a glastig, a margin una, or green maiden. One such story tells of a glastig who prevented Donald Cameron, a hunter in Loch Abba, from killing a herd of hinds which she was driving. Seeing him raise his gun, she called to him, You are too hard on my hinds, Donald. You must not be so hard on them. Donald, quick-witted, answered her with this swift reply, I have never killed a hind where I could find a stag. So he allowed the hinds to pass, and concentrated ever afterwards on taking the occasional stag, and the glastic never bothered him again. In another story, a man returned from hunting on Ben Rick one day, when he heard a sound like the cracking of two rocks against each other. At the base of a large stone by the road, he found a woman with a green shawl around her shoulders. The woman, clearly a glastic, held a deer shank in each hand and constantly struck them together. He asked her what she was doing, but she cried only over and over again, since the forest was burnt, since the forest was burnt, and she kept repeating this refrain for as long as he could hear her. 
Here, the Kalyak mourns the cutting of the forest. Here, she mourns the loss of her deer. Here, perhaps, she mourns the coming of the road, the coming of man, and of progress. Here, like the old woman of beer, she seems to have been dethroned, deprived of her power to protect. The elder, fully embedded in and belonging to her place, is fierce in her protection of it. Love and respect your place, she will tell you, for there is a strong argument that you begin to love the whole, not just a pretty idea of earth, but the complex, thorny reality of it, by learning to fully love your own part. We engage in a meaningful way with our current environmental crisis by starting with a place that we call home, so that in whatever ways are open to us, we can take responsibility for and help to protect the land that we occupy, the land which in a sense we personify. To become elder, then, is to protect the living, but it is also to be able to face death. The Kalyak in Scotland whipping up the winter storms, striking the ground hard with her staff so that frost forms where it falls, represents the dying half of the year. And yet she is able to constantly renew herself, a reminder that the creative process which is so fundamental an aspect of womanhood is a cycle of birth and rebirth, founded on the principle that death constantly gives birth to life. In order to embrace the creation of life, you must be able to live with the knowledge of death. This is the heart of what it is to be fully a human being. It is also at the heart of our old native ways of knowing. The Celts viewed time, and so life, as cyclical rather than linear. This cyclicity isn't just an interesting historical curiosity lacking in practical consequence. It is evidence of an entirely different worldview. If you see the world as linear, then the dynamic forces which underlie existence are those of progress and growth. And over the past couple of thousand years, these concepts have become more than just the bedrock of Western economics. They've become the foundational ideas of our civilization. If you see life as linear, so that progress and growth are what give it meaning, then it's hard to endure impermanence of any kind. It's especially hard to live with death, because death is the ultimate impermanence. In modern Western society, we want to preserve everything, and we want to live forever. We wage war on old age and write songs about being forever young. And because death is seen as no more nor less than the end of the line, and so something to be held off and resisted, we live in constant fear of it. But to the Celts, death was inextricably intertwined with life. Every month the moon died and was reborn. Every winter the sun died and was reborn. The tide came in and the tide receded. To think that you could avoid these natural cycles was not only unthinkable, but undesirable. Out of all the dying, something precious and new is always born. Unending transformation, the greatest of all the gifts the earth offers us. Life in death and death in life. It's the secret that's contained in the grail, in the ancient cauldron of rebirth. Perhaps more than anything, to become elder is to be comfortable with your place in the world. Finally, to have understood where all of your various journeys have been leading you, to understand your gifts as well as your limitations, and to tightly focus those gifts on service to the earth and community. To become the elder who can express her wrath rather than her rage, and warn of the dire consequences of ignoring it, is to have stepped fully into your own power as a woman. To become elder is to have found the courage to reclaim the moral authority which we once lost. That reclaiming takes courage, because women have always been trained so very well to be afraid. 
and it isn't always our impotence which makes us most afraid. Sometimes it's our power. We're not accustomed to it, and so we fear its consequences. To step into your power means to trust yourself, your instincts, and your intuition, to let the fear go and the shame, and tell the stories which need to be told. So I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson, who is a culture activist, a teacher, an author, and a ceremonialist. Stephen's also the creator and principal instruction of the Orphan Wisdom School, which he founded in 2010. He has master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work, and his work is focused around defining, redefining what it means to live and to die well. He's also, by the way, a sculptor and a traditional canoe builder whose house won a Governor General's Award for Architecture, which sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, he's the author of, among other publications, the book Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. And his forthcoming book, Coming of Age, is about elderhood. And Stephen, uh, that's where I'd like to begin today. And I guess a good place to begin would be to ask you to tell us a little bit about what an elder is to you. <laughs> Well, this is a tricky business because uh, they're in short supply where I live. It's a little bit conjecture, it's a little bit imagination, and it's a little bit longing that would go into the answer. I guess the first thing I'd say is um, the, I think uh, elderhood or elders are, are pretty conspicuous by their absence uh, in the jurisdictions that I live and work and have traveled in, actually. And, and the conundrum seems to come down to this. Uh, in the dominant culture of North America, which is the only place I lay claim to having any familiarity or any, you know, relevant something to say. I should just say that. So it doesn't automatically translate to any other place. But certainly there, mm -hmm. in, the, in the dominant culture of North America, we probably have more old people per square foot than the world has ever seen. And you would think if old people equals experience and experience equals wisdom, and wisdom equals, let's just call it, a sustainable way of life. And then at least in North America, we should be the paragons of all those things. And everybody should be flocking to our shores for instruction on how to be sane. And we ourselves should be so awash in the stuff that we'd be tired of it. And of course, I'm saying all this with, with a lot of irony because the truth is far from that. It's, um, it kind of cuts in the other direction. And I'm left to wonder. Uh, with not that many other people, frankly, how it's come that we have more old people than we've ever had. And we've had so few elders uh, than we've ever had. So there's the, the preamble and then the amble part, the, the question that you've asked me. Um, maybe, maybe elderhood is best understood, at least by me, not as a person nor, nor as a character type uh, or as a, a slant of a personality or any of those other things, that elder really, first and foremost, probably should be a verb and not a noun or an adjective, which is to say it is something that's done. Yeah, and, um, and the doing of it might come down to this. They say that Carl Jung, somewhere in his illustrious life, made the observation that every generation has a kind of project of its own spirit, that it's a purely and utterly um, a consequence of the wrinkles and the travails of its time, that that's where its marching orders come from, not from its preferences or its dreams so much as it's um, the craziness 
and the concertedness that make up its time. That's where it's, that's where its work comes from. And the, the question then becomes what happens when you have go from one generation to the next without people in that given generation taking up the work, which is certainly true where I live. And the answer is that you have this compound inheritance of undone work of the spirit and the soul, which becomes the fundamental inheritance of, say, my generation, certainly my children's generation, I think. And so elderhood now is kind of gone without a trace. Um, I'm not, I don't mean that the work is not undertaken, but it's fitful and it's, um, and it's scarred and it's wounded. Yeah. And it's, um, it's deeply not sought by people in the middle age or in their young age as a rule. All of these things, then I'm leaving you a, a sense that the, the landscape is cluttered by things that haven't happened. And elderhood might be one of those things that haven't happened for quite a while. That's interesting, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that we are that we are lacking in elderhood. And I'm curious as to your perspective on on what went wrong, how we lost, how did we lose elderhood? Where did it go? Yeah, well, certainly it wasn't quote lost in my lifetime, or or nor my parents or grandparents' lifetime. I think I think it's um, it's a rumor and has been for some some generations. So the idea of lost is, is more that itself is ancestral. Yeah. So I don't know. I have, since I've <laughs> written a book about it, it's kind of close at hand. Two things come to mind. Three, uh, the one closest to, a, to me in, in time probably occurred uh, over between the 1600s and the 18 to 1900s, which is the time really when North America took on the hue uh, that it has now where a spontaneous mass migration from where you are uh, largely and from a few other places in Western Europe uh, produced America. And as such, all the people that came, uh, most of whom did not choose to come, yeah, most of whom were refugees of one sort or another, they, uh, and reluctantly so probably, they, um, they brought their poverties fundamentally with them. And they brought their losses with them. And that's what was unpacked from the sea trunks first. And those losses have become the architecture of North American cultural life and to a certain degree, it's spirit life. Yeah. So there's the first thing mm -hmm. is that the founding principles are kind of chimeric. They're, they're ghostly or ghosted. And then um, you have a, a dilemma known as the forced conversion of people's ancestry to the one God religion known today as Christianity. And this is not to lay anything at the feet of, quote, card-carrying Christians today as individuals, but, but there's certain, you know, certain true things about history that if they continue to go in the shadow because uh, people are offended, then the shadows become the festering places for, for even worse. And in this case, you know, Christianity was forced, I mean, everybody knows it, who wants to know, uh, on, on people's ancestors. And, and those ancestors were obliged in turn to turn away from those who came before them in the name of saving their souls or joining God in heaven or whatever it might be. That is an enormous consequence for elderhood because in those times of conversion, it seems to me the likelihood is that it would be the old people and the medicine people generally who would be the ones who are holding the, the culture, the, let's call it the indigenous culture of the time, closest to the chest, closest to the heart. 
and they would have been the ones that were probably singled out for particular scorn and scrutiny and diminishment as this process went on and washed across Europe from say the 500s or thereabouts, depending on where you're talking about, through to about a thousand or so. And the job was done by about a thousand. The third thing, I know this is a lot, but the third thing is really the Roman Empire or the Pax Romana, as the Romans themselves called it. And the amazing thing to observe about the, the forced conversion to civility, which was the Roman Empire across Europe, was how remarkably parallel how the Romans did their work with how the Christian missionaries did theirs. And the principal yeah. similarity between the two is that um, in both cases, they turn people against their own understanding of themselves as the principal way of defeating them. So you right. put those three things together, you have a considerable, you know, goulash of, um, of um, a sense of profoundly, even devoutly lost and a kind of, you know, paralysis of the heart that masquerades as freedom. Yeah, again, um, I wholeheartedly agree with you. One of the things, as you'll know, that we are interested in doing um, here at our wee hedge school in, um, in the west of Ireland is, is going back to some, of, to some of the wisdom that was pre-Christian, arguably pre-Roman, to the extent that we can define that, to the extent that we know about that, and look for, look for role models, look for ideas that, that we might be able to bring back into the present and, you know, with a, with a contemporary, with, with some relevance for contemporary life, learn from. And it's quite interesting in the, in, the, in the Gaelic tradition, the Irish and Scottish Gaelic tradition, we do actually have role models of elderhood in our mythology. And it seems to me, and I'm sure we'll come onto this in a moment, that one of the problems perhaps we have at the moment is we don't have good contemporary role models, or not very many of them. But we have this wonderful character called the Kaliach, which literally translates as the old woman. And in our native mythology, she is the old woman who created and shaped the world. And what, what else is interesting about her is that she is very much portrayed in all of the stories and folklore about her as a guardian and protector of the wild, as someone who is not a wicked woman, as someone who is not an angry woman, but someone who displays what you might call a righteous wrath if humans take too much, take too many of her deer for example, cut down too much of the forests. And so she's a great role model in a sense for, for that particular type of elderhood. She's not a very complex character, what remains of her, but she's something to, to, to look to. And do, do you not think that that might be part of our problem, that we have lost those role models? We don't see any very much, do we, in, in the Christian tradition? Well, uh, to be honest, since you've asked me, to my mind, the notion of role model probably is the the dilemma to me in that mm -hmm. um you know cultivating this idea of exemplars seems i wonder where the instinct to do so comes from i wonder whether it's just an quote natural human ever occurring instinct or whether whether the the instinct to either hold certain people or certain characteristics or certain examples up as exemplary whether that's not doesn't come from the very kind of lostness and woundedness that both of us have been acknowledging here in the last few minutes. I suspected it might, to be honest. I'm, I, you can hear here a personal dilemma about the no notion of, and I know you're not using it in this way, but the notion of heroism, let's call it, that, that, uh, which participates deeply in this idea of exemplary behavior and so on. It's, um, I'm very leery, frankly, about, about nursing the idea of 
that there are exemplars or role models or heroes. You can distinguish between those, but there is some overlap, at least as I understand it. And that's the first part. The second part of the answer would be something like, yeah, I don't know that we've lost it, to be honest. I think I think the era that you're talking about might be so far back that there's no experience of having lost it that's contemporary because there's no experience of its presence that's contemporary. What we're really experiencing, I, I think, where I come from again, is these things are conspicuous by their absence. And absence has a certain kind of presence to it that doesn't allow much imagination, I suppose. It kind of forecloses on imagination. And and I understand you have a school, and, and I do too. We're doing, we're doing what we can. You're on one side of the ocean and me and the other. But um, I'm wondering, you know, apropos of what you've just mentioned here, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, where I come from is basically a co- the constituent parts come from where you are. I wonder, you know, I'm going to ask you a question now, if you don't mind. Who, who are we to you? Who are you as North Americans? Yes. You mean? Yeah. Um, that's a very that's a very interesting question, and um, I think we'd probably need a couple of podcasts to to look at that one. I would say I work a lot with North Americans. Curiously, most of the people who want to do my courses are from North America. I would say about sixty percent. And so, what you are to me is a group of people who came from this place or these places, let's say, who who left behind their hearts and their souls because they landed in a place where they had no um, sense of belonging. And increasingly, I think, as people have begun to come to terms with the consequences of their landing in that place for the indigenous peoples of Canada and, and America, there's, there's an even greater sense of not being able to belong to the place where your feet are planted, which I think is in some ways a sickness, excuse me. And so to me, what you are, what you, what a lot of people from North America are missing is that sense of continuity that comes from their ancestral line, which gives them confidence, which gives them a sense of belonging to the world at large that they can then bring back to the place where their feet are planted, if that makes sense. So I guess to me, uh, and I'm kind of, I don't know whether I'm ducking your question or, or just wandering off in a little bit of a tangent, but that business about role models, it's perhaps not the best phrase that I use there. It's not so much to me exemplars of how to behave as some sense that somewhere in our past, in our ancestral past, there were powerful old people, powerful not in a heroic sense, but people who had weight and who had authority. And so I would tie that back to your question and say that what what people that I work, the people that I work with in North America are people who have lost a sense of that continuity, of that sense of that belonging to a line, to a tradition that matters, that has heart. And so I suppose what I'm interested in is how, how can we pick that up again? How can we pick that heart up again? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I guess I, the thing that I wonder about as I'm listening to you describe it is at least the inference is that somehow if we, quote, left it behind, then it's still there where you are, which means that maybe at some level that you're doing pretty well on these matters of continuity, cultural continuity and, and those things. Is, is that what you mean to say? 
Um, I don't mean to say that we're doing pretty well. I think I think actually in Ireland, particularly, we do better than most, if, if I may say that, because in spite of the fact that the Catholic Church has held sway here for a long period of time, it's kind of run side by side with an adherence to some old ways that are not Catholic in origin and a very, very strong tradition of belonging to place and of, of feeling that your feet are in the right place when you're here, which is one of the reasons, I think, why the Irish, when they leave, when they emigrate, get so lost. You know, they have this desperate sense of longing for this place that they wholeheartedly belong to. So it's not that we have all of the answers, but I think we don't have to dig quite as deep, perhaps, as some peoples for our old traditions. Ireland particularly has one of the the widest and, and biggest collections of ancient literature in Europe, you know, so we, we have somewhere to start. It's not we have the answers, but we have a place to start, I think, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting to notice because uh, I was asked repeatedly over four or five or six years to take the Orphan Wisdom School in some fashion or other to Europe because obviously it was a very expensive proposition for lots of people to try to fly over. To North America, and I did so starting about, I guess, a year ago. That's certainly not their take on themselves. What you what you described, mm-hmm. and I should say, you know, Ireland is not hugely represented in the in the group, but over, it's a small number, right? Seventy or eighty or so people, all of whom are Europeans. They um they're coming to a a school that they've ple- pleaded for from North America. You know, at one level you could say, who knows? And uh, but I mean, a, a, a deeper question might be this. My wife is a French descent now. She's a, she's been a Quebecer for 450 odd years, which in North American terms is an eternity. When she goes to France, she's considered at best a curiosity. And when she went to the place that her people literally came from to board the ships, uh, there was not only no curiosity about her in any way, but there was a kind of strange dismissiveness, let's just say, as if um, this were kind of irrelevant to the current proceedings, this kind of quest, if you will. And yet, certainly, in, uh, there's places in North America where clearly from an accent point of view and so on, there's, a, there's an ancientness, even to the way English is spoken in places in North America, that it is older than the English that is spoken in Europe now, for the obvious yeah, reason absolutely. Of, the, of the rupture. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe we could say, and obviously, as you said, we should get together and talk about this a lot more, but uh, you could say something like this. When people left, when you left to become us, it's very possible that it wasn't suddenly freeze frame time for us and that we haven't been 400 years of of nothing or emptiness. Rather, it might be possible. I'm not sure about this at all, but it might be possible that in that interim of 400 years, there's something 400 years old about us that could not be preserved in continental Europe. What do you think about that? I I think it is absolutely entirely possible. Um, I've seen it um, in the places in North America where I have lived, which have actually been closer to the Appalachians more than in in Canada, where you very much see English spoken that is possibly uh, positively Elizabethan, where there is a fascinating blend of old English folklore, much of which is forgotten now in England, which has been taken and has taken on a life of its own. You also see it in Canada, in Cape Breton, in Newfoundland, where the Scottish Gaelic and Irish traditions are in some ways, 
more alive, you know, than than they are in parts of their native land. So I don't mean at all, you know, when I talk about people leaving something behind, I don't mean at all to be dismissive or to suggest that there is nothing that's grown up in the meantime. I suppose the people that I'm talking about don't have that sense of, you know, that sense of a, a strong lineage, but it, it, but it for sure, it for sure exists. So the idea that you bring some of that back to the places that need it, I think is terrific. I don't think anybody should have any kind of ownership of it. To, to me, as I was saying, the, the, the we, we have, it's comforting to me as a person with, with a Scottish and Irish background entirely to know that in my mythology, in my ancestral traditions, there were powerful women and that there were powerful old people. Now that doesn't though, to come back to our discussion and I hope the point of your book, that doesn't necessarily tell us how to behave. That doesn't tell us how to become elder or as you say the verb rather than the noun so let's let's maybe step back to that and uh, and ask me uh, let me ask you if, if I can what you think what do you think it is then to do elderhood in the way that you were talking about what does it look like if you can paint a picture largely and this the answer is purely a child of its own time the, the principal job of the elder in my lifetime I think is the willingness to not prevail, to not succeed, to not win, to not be victorious, but instead to be frail, to, to have futility visited upon oneself with some frequency, to take upon oneself uh, the, all the integers of limit, which are human. They're not indications of kind of personal ruination or, or personal idiosyncratic failure. I'm saying that the, the principal job of, of an elder in a culture addicted to competence, like mine is, is the willingness to be frail and to ebb and then to end. You see, which of course brings me to the work I did in the, in the death trade too, where, um, and it's not only true of old people, but certainly it was true of old people that as a rule, uh, they refused to die. They hated to die. They... Um, they deeply were offended by the notion of limit and ending and things of this kind. So you see, it's, it's the answer that comes from the principle I mentioned to you earlier, that, that the function of elderhood is determined by its time. And one of the hallmarks of the time and place that I live in is what I called a minute ago, sort of um, competence addiction in the extreme and firing on all cylinders and uh, not looking your age and, not letting them see you sweat and, uh, you know, wringing everything you can out of your allotment. And we could just go on and on with the kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. afflictions that, that bear that. But it's so, so an elder is not just cantankerous or contrary, but an elder, I, su I suppose, not to make it a formula, but to, make, to, to try to observe it in the, in the tone that you asked me, might uh, take upon themselves the job of being everything that the worrisome and debilitated culture would rather not know about or see. So they are kind of by definition in our time, liminal characters, you know, not really appearing to swell from the bosom of the mothership, but rather in some kind of dinghy out in the ocean, briny ocean costs, you know, something in that category, I think. That's an interesting description of elderhood. You talk about, or the subtitle of, of your book is The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And if we look at 
the troubles of the world, then for sure our inability to, to deal with ending, particularly our own ending, is is one of them. What do you think that, that good elderhood, if I can use that terribly sloppy phrase, has to tell us about the, the environmental crisis that we're facing at the moment? Well, it's simple, I think. It's simple as in not complicated, but not simple as in easy to, to take in or to swallow. You know, the, the elder's willingness to be limited is is principal attribute. Let me take the example of the difference between a tool and a machine. This is an arbitrary thing. It's what I figure. What's a tool? A tool is an extension of the human hand, the capacities of the human hand. But a machine, a machine doesn't extend the hand. A machine extends the will, the human will, particularly regarding dominating what's around it and extracting and all the rest. And if you put those two things together, maybe you get something like an elder's principal way of being recognizable is they, they reinstate limit. They, they're, they're fundamental cultural workers. If you understand culture to be the willingness to live within the limits that your home place dictates. If that's what cultured people are, it seems to me, uh, that's what they are. Then the elders are to be found at the absolute edge of what the culture should be doing and no, and the culture should go no further. Well, what we have at my place is a lot of pe- old people put into uh, chronic care facilities. Um, one of the things the culture shouldn't be doing. To pick up on that, question of of elders reinstating limits. I think if I may go back to my example of the Kaliach, the old woman who is one of our um, preeminent elders in the um, Irish and Scottish traditions, that's kind of what she's doing, which is why I think she's such an interesting character for the times. Um, She is saying to the hunters, you may not take all of the stags, you know, you may not take the pregnant hinds, you, you may not cut down the forest. And so she kind of stands there as some guardian and protector of the land, which again, in these times of ecological crisis is something is something that is very interesting to me. Now, now if we look at it in terms of behavior, which I know that that you're not necessarily wanting to do that, but I'm going to press you a little bit anyway, just because I am a psychologist and I can't help wanting to talk about behavior. To what extent is it acceptable, do you think, for, for elders to, to display this kind of very strong sort of, no, you may not, you may not do this attitude to the younger generations who are, who are causing so much damage? Well, as long as it doesn't tip into parenting, I would say, <laughs> sure. But it's a very thin line. And I think the fundamental distinction between parents and elders is that parents are crafting, and you know, speaking as one, I should say. We tend to craft in our own image, be it our children or our ideals or whatever influence we exert in the community and so on. We are doing so according to a kind of image that uh, we don't often admit to. Elders, on the other hand, I don't think they're crafting anything in their own image. I think their image such it is or their sense of self if i could put it this way has has been corroded so fundamentally during the course of their aging that they don't have a self to defend and in that sense they may not, they might not actually have a defensive posture about anything nor a disqualifying posture about anything what they might have instead is a willingness to end alongside that which they would propose to preserve. 
In other words, it's not it's not trying to uh, maintain themselves by maintaining some other life form, but something like what is in the nature of of the wild. Let me let me imagine this out loud for a second. Uh, we have a lot of quote wilderness in Canada, tons of it actually. You know, one of the things that the wilderness has in common from place to place to place is it the fundamental um, inability to cross itself, to undermine its sense of itself for the sake of preserving itself, which is to say that the that the the wild is extraordinarily vulnerable to the rapacious extractive industries and so forth, very vulnerable. And yet the teaching of that somewhere seems to be like this, that the, the final defeat of the wild is if it responds to us in kind, if it responds to rapaciousness through punitive uh, withholding or, or, or some, other kind of, some, some other kind of punishment. So it seems to me then that elders might take their cue from the wild in this regard and not undermine the elder function for the sake of being one, but that the elder function and the elder together slip under the waves in hopes that somewhere in there the lesson might be taken. Okay. So being, being an elder in the sense that you're talking about it is very much then about having come to terms with with death so let's let's talk a little bit about death which i know you're very very well used to and and some of the ideas in die wise you say that dying is about living with meaning how does that tie into your your concept of elderhood well the first part first my understanding of of dying is that it's fairly fairly elaborately an autobiographical declaration which is to say that in my experience people died pretty much in the way in which they lived that their dying was not a 11th hour rising up from sloth or ignominy or ignorance or or lostness or anything of the kind and there was very little in the way of deathbed conversions to sanity or to depth of meaning or capacity or anything of that kind and this is a a remarkably redemptive vision if the culture we're talking about in which people lived their lives was fundamentally, you know, death informed, death literate and grief literate. But uh, certainly where I come from, this is not true of the dominant culture of North America. It's grief illiterate in the extreme. And that means that people tended to, in its bosom to die illiterate about grief, unknowing and un uncertain about their dying. And this characterized their dying time which is to say then that no matter how old they were, they tended not to die in this as exemplars of the elder function that I've been talking about. If anything, they probably died in a, in a way that was so banal in that the spectacle was all about keeping dying at bay. And when that ultimately failed, it was a, it was a kind of low-grade misery that attended most of them, to be frank. So... You can tell then that people learn their lessons about dying in an elder-free zone, you see. If elders are, as I said earlier, and a kind of a reinstatement of limit, and then North Americans come to their dying time as an insult to their limitless potential, you can see that where they got that idea from is they lived their lives in an, uh, in an elder-free zone where limit was another thing to be defeated. 
to be sneered at and to get the right running shoes and the right t-shirt and you can defy any limit. Go to the right weekend seminar or the right school or whatever, you can defend, defeat any limit. You can only hold on to that vision of personal heroism in the absence of an elderhood that not only pleads with you to see otherwise, but in fact enforces your own understanding of your limits upon you and calls that a gift. Yeah, that's 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 a lovely thing. I think I think to to me part of the problem has always been that in a sense people don't really know what death is. I mean, I understand what you're saying about it being uh, about limits and accepting our own limits and so on and that is absolutely one very important facet of it. But we're taught really to to avoid death in so many ways, aren't we? Kind of like emotionally, if it happens not just to us but if it happens to somebody around us, we don't really know how to engage with it. We almost we almost don't know what it is. It's almost like something forbidden or slightly even a little bit embarrassing that we don't really want to talk about. We don't know how to be, I suppose, is what I'm clumsily trying to get to. We don't know how to be in the presence of death, literally to be. How, how do you think we can get better at that? Well, by first fessing up to the poverty of our approach to it. Minus that, any self-improvement program is, a, is just a frail little trinket. So to my mind, dying has, has for many years now presented, I've understood it as a deity or a god, capital G, I should say. And by which I mean, not that it's all powerful, I mean that its presence is irrepressible and of massive and generally uncontrollable or undomesticatable consequence. And as such, the question really is not, as so many North Americans at least talk about it, how to befriend your death, how to get comfortable with your death and all the rest. If death is an un, un domesticated, not housebroken, um, wild thing, then the idea of you getting comfortable with it is, is crazy and totally uncalled for. It's really a question of all things of etiquette, it seems to me, or the quality of approach. So you could say that it might be in the manner of a sane approach to death to craft and cultivate a kind of emotional and cultural and spirit-based and fundamentally linguistic approach, which is to say that all of your approaches, including mine to you and you to me here, are linguistically driven and derived. And one of the things I tried to do for years and ultimately tried to put down in DieWise was a language wherein the realities of dying would actually appear, not be thwarted, not be assuaged, but appear. And in so doing, try to speak the God talk of death or the death talk of God, whichever you'd prefer. And uh, for us to learn a language wherein the realities of death come to call and to do so without benefit of a terminal diagnosis, but from a very early age, to be exposed to it from a very early age, is in the realm of restorative measures that you've asked me about. Minus a language where the realities of dying take place, and, and recur, I don't think there's any recourse because the language will always undo any approach that doesn't rehabilitate the language first. You know, Freud called his psychotherapy, called it the, the talking cure. And I think since we're in that period now where we're obliged to cure the talk instead, and that's what I've been trying to do for years. 
interesting approach. I, I guess my my approach is very much in um, to to the, this work and other work is very much about working with the imagination, which is probably more in images than than words. Although the two are not, you know, cannot be extricated. I suppose I'm very interested in what you say about death as a as a kind of deity and as a kind of presence because as someone who has never um i'm now 56 years old i have never experienced the death of anybody very close to me curiously perhaps however a few months ago our much beloved old sheepdog was diagnosed very suddenly with lymphoma with canine lymphoma she has recovered by the way but at that time it was quite a shock to me and i described it to all of my friends as if it was literally as if death in some strange black presence had walked into my house uninvited and sat down at the table and it was such a such a such a big presence that i couldn't for once in my life for once in my life i couldn't put an image around it i couldn't make it into an image I couldn't say, oh, it's a raven or it's a bear or something like that. It was just this amazing, huge presence. The fact, though, that I could see it as that presence, that I could that I could feel it rather as that presence, made it for the first time real to me and something that I then recognized that I had to engage with. That death was not just going to get up one day and walk away from my table, you know, if I if I if I banished it. That this is something that from now on I was really this presence, whatever it might be, I was going to have to negotiate with is not the right word because that's a very western way of putting it isn't it but i was going to have to come to terms with that presence at my table yes indeed how about this that you use the expression death uninvited it it's it behooves both of us to remember yet again and yet again at our ages that death uninvited is a consequence of how we are with death not a consequence of how death is with us we do the uninvited it's not death that does and you probably are familiar and you've probably worked with the, the, the Beowulf story. You'll recall in Beowulf that one of the early images is that the monster come, coming down, excuse me, Grendel it would be, coming down on the mist bands and so on, and hesitates at the door of the hall. And the, the old English word there is he touches, almost caresses the door. What's going on inside the hall is merriment and drinking and feasting and so on. And he, of course, is deeply on the outside looking in. And the case could be made, and I've made it in my school many times, that what monsters the monster is the monster's exclusion from the feast hall of human life. And this may be the encounter that we have fundamentally in the West with dying and with death, is that we've monstered death to the point now where it has some serious reaction to being excluded. And it's not a punitive reaction. It's an animate reaction reaction you could say so i think we're we're in concert there with what you said and what i said in your experience there with with dying coming to your house and um you know the the more open your door is the less harm there is to the furniture when dying comes around <laughs> so you feed death when it comes to your table Absolutely. you feed it something you give it a life give it the libation worthy of a oh, god oh you i mean you feast him first or you feast her first. You, you inquire after death's appetite and you discover death is not an omnivore. Or I should at least say that death is not unrestrained appetite. That's the West. That's not death. No, death doesn't come and eat everyone and everything at once. Remember, death doesn't consume life. Death is the, is the um, sustainer of life. And every sane culture knows this deeply, which is why death is so deeply honored. Because life does not spring from life. 
Life is a consuming proposition. Uh, death, on the other hand, is a giving proposition. This is true, of course, you know, horticulturally and in every other way it can be understood. So it's probably uh, not the, not a word I like to use, but I'm I'm short on adjectives at the moment. So it's a spiritual reality dying, and its life-giving powers are absolutely undeniable and non-negotiable. You banish dying and death and endings of all kinds from the scene. You are in a chronically consumptive way of life that that can't even find a way of stopping. Well, that sounds like a very good note on which to end our conversation. I know you have some um, some things that you need to be doing. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been a fascinating conversation for me. I'm really looking forward to reading the new book, which I think is out in July. Is that correct? Yeah, the very beginning of July, they tell me if I can finish these rewrites in time. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we look forward to reading it, Stephen. And thank you so much for uh, for checking in with us and uh, and taking the time to talk. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's an honor to be able to speak with you. Take care of yourself. And if you did enjoy our conversation, do please continue to follow our work at the Hedge School, where you'll find free resources as well as paid-for courses designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep, embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate earth. It's about dreaming and it's about waking up. Above all, it's about dreaming ourselves awake. Our podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. And if you are able to support our work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for The Hedge School. Or you can find a link on our website at www.thehedgeschool.org. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.